My daughter and her husband live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota. And that just sounds awful, doesn't it? I, I mean, you, that's, that doesn't sound like the kind of place that you're going to go for a, a warm vacation, um, and you don't. But we all decided that we would go up at uh, the early part of my vacation and see her. So um, Julie and I and my son and daughter-in-law and my mother-in-law, we all piled in the car. We drove up, and we decided, because uh, we were there over the 4th of July, that we would drive even further north on the 4th and go to Duluth and just kind of walk around Duluth, uh, Minnesota, and see what there was to see there. And I didn't push back on that, uh, primarily because, if you know your geography, Duluth is on the shores of Lake Superior, and if you're a smooth, easy, 70s classic rock fan, you know that Superior is the big lake they call Gitchigumi. Um, how many people have any idea what I'm talking about? All right? All right? The tremendous, epic Gordon Lightfoot song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Now, if you heard The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, you, you had no, Micah's going, no. Uh, you know, Micah was 30 years from being born when that song came out, but I digress. Well, I, I was super excited, and so we're driving up I-35, we're getting close, and I decide the entire family needs to listen to all six minutes and 29 seconds of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And I was in just kind of a, a wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald hysteria by the time we got there. And, and so I, I, I forced, and, and that's, that's not overselling it, I forced my son and my son-in-law to walk the shores with me and then go to the Lake Superior Maritime Museum where they had this huge display about everything related to the Edmund Fitzgerald. And there we learned all of the things related, all of them, to the Edmund Fitzgerald. I was enraptured, and honestly, my son and son-in-law were behind me going, <laughs> seriously. But it was a good moment for me. I really, really liked it. Really, really liked it. But shipwrecks in general have always inspired poems, songs, Movies, the biggest selling movie of all time, obviously, is about a shipwreck. Titanic, they are things that hold our fascination. And I was reading about why people are so fascinated by them, and one author that I became acquainted with said that she believes that people are fascinated with the stories of shipwrecks. Because car wrecks can be swept up in a matter of hours, and you never know anything happened. But a shipwreck is preserved in this kind of ghostly silence for, for decades, and they become mysterious. And that may be true. It may be that the mystery of it is what draws us to the stories. But I'm a pragmatist, and I think that what draws us to stories of shipwrecks is so that we can, you know, learn how to not be in one. I mean, that... That's what it boils down to. I mean, how do I avoid getting on that boat, getting in that situation so that I'm not uh, uh, somebody who's uh, of the focus of a six-minute and 29-second Gordon Lightfoot song? How do I avoid that? But, but that's true also of other kinds of shipwreck stories, um, personal shipwreck stories, where people have failed miserably in some way. We're drawn to those stories and I think it is because we want to learn, well, how can I avoid having that shipwreck in my life? That can be a shipwreck relationally. That, that can be a shipwreck vocationally. But 
But what I'm concerned with today are those shipwrecks that happen spiritually. There are people that we all know who have come to points where they had to choose, am I going to be faithful to Jesus or not? And by choosing not to be, have shipwrecked their lives. And their lives have never been the same because of backing away from being faithful. So what can we learn from Scripture about how the faithful weather those storms in life and avoid the shipwrecks? We are going to learn what there is to learn, at least in part today, as we look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. I hope you've already found that in your copy of God's Word. Would you stand, please, as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning? 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Paul writes, very personal letter to a young man named Timothy. Remember, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The offspring of David is preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the Word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, there are some helpful things in those personal instructions to Timothy that can help us know how the faithful avoid shipwrecking their life. Remember the circumstances. Paul is writing Timothy, who has, and I've said this before, it's the best way I know to say it, has a case of the nerves. He's, he's, he's being pushed by forces within his church and forces, cultural forces outside the church in ways that were causing him to really question whether he was going to stay in the game, whether not only, I, I think, not only was he going to stay engaged in doing gospel ministry, but was he, was he going to walk away from all of this and the trouble it was causing his life altogether? And so Paul has begun, it's really kind of all through the book, but he's begun a particular way of encouraging Timothy um, in this chapter that goes back to verse 1. And when we get to verse 8, he's looping back to it. Uh, and, and really kind of pressing home ways that Timothy could remain faithful. And here's the first thing he shares with him. It comes in verse 8. These things, again, super simple because it's a very personal, simple letter. The first thing that the faithful know about weathering storms is knowing, remembering that Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Look, look again at, at verse 8. He says very simply, remember, call to mind, don't forget that Jesus is alive. Now, he's, he's doing more than saying to him, Timothy, remember Easter. Remember that, that decades ago now, on a Sunday morning, Christ Jesus came alive and walked out of a tomb. He's, he's doing more than saying remember event. He, he, he's actually pressing home more for Timothy. Remember the implications of that event. It's not just that Jesus historically 
rose from the grave and walked out of a tomb. It's that Jesus remains alive. And Jesus remaining alive gives us a benefit that can help us remain faithful when our faith is being pressed upon. It keeps us from abandoning faith, keeps us from shipwrecking our lives in a moment of faithlessness. How does that work? How How does knowing that Jesus right now is alive keep us faithful? Most of us have heard of the German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I think most of us are, are familiar with the general trajectory of his life. He was a young man, pastor, theologian in Germany during the rise of Adolf Hitler. He was a man who was deeply committed to pacifism. You read his works, you understand that. But he reached a point where he, he understood Hitler to be such an, an historic monster that he had to be stopped by taking his life, by murdering him if need be. So Bonhoeffer was a part of the plot to assassinate Hitler and was found out when it failed and imprisoned. And he spent the remainder of his life in prison. And in fact, he got a month away from the end of World War II. Allied forces pressing in on Germany. It's all settled at this point. The battle, the final battle hasn't been fought. And a month out, on April the 8th, uh, 1945, he was walked to his execution. An eyewitness, a doctor in the German prison, records for us the only eyewitness account we have of the event. Here's, here's what he wrote. Through the half-open door in one room of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer, before taking off his prison guard, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows brave and composed. And here is the most well-known line from this account. In the almost 50 years that I have worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. So he's, he's walking up these gallows to his death. He knows there is no way around it. And yet he is resolute in his faithfulness to God. And these are among the last words that he is recorded as having said. They come from his final sermon preached, if I'm not mistaken, the morning that he died or the night before he died. He said this, this is for me the end, the beginning of life. Listen to that. This is for me the end, the beginning of life. How can he look at his death and see it as we would all see our own impending deaths as the end, but then also say the beginning of the life? The reason he's able to do that is because Jesus is alive. He uh, he understood in that moment when everything was being demanded on him, when when it was Jesus or nothing, 
that, that picking Jesus was the winning move. And the reason it was the winning move, it was because Jesus was alive. And he understood that the gospel message includes the idea of a resurrected Savior who is alive today, who gives us that life at the moment of our surrender to Jesus. And that life transcends death. And so Paul was facing his own execution. He may have been just days away himself at this point in time from his own execution. And he's saying to Timothy, take it from someone who's having to hang on to this for everything he's worth. That you can do anything that God demands of you, even giving up your life. If you remember the simple gospel truth, that Jesus is alive. That's the first thing to do. If you're going to avoid that shipwreck in life, the faithful remember, know that Jesus is alive. The next thing that they know that keeps them faithful is that the gospel is worth it. Remaining faithful to the gospel message is worth it. At the end of verse 10, excuse me, at the end of verse 8, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he refers to his gospel. Now, when Paul says my gospel, he is not saying the gospel that I formulated, the gospel, the message that I created. He's saying the gospel that I surrendered my life to about Jesus, the risen Jesus, the, the son of David, the Messiah, the gospel I've surrendered to, and the gospel that I preach. That's what he means when he says my gospel. He says uh, my gospel is the thing Verse 9, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here's the thing that we have to know to appreciate what Paul is saying here about his imprisonment and about enduring. We have to know that he wouldn't be in this spot if he had just kept his big mouth shut. In the book of Acts, which gives us a lot of the historical context to the ministry of Paul, we see that Paul very clearly comes to this point in his life where he believes that God's will for him is to make it to Rome to preach the gospel to the very seats of power. And that, in his mind, the best way to do that, <laughs> good plan, get arrested. If I can get arrested and work my way through the appeals process in the Roman government, I will be able to share the gospel message with the seats of power all the way up, maybe including Caesar himself. And so he goes to Jerusalem at an, a religiously charged time. And rather than hide, he makes a public spectacle of himself so that everybody sees them. They're, they're ready to tear him from limb to limb. And he says, wait, I can fix this. <laughs> and he gets everybody to be quiet. And then he says, the Jesus who you killed is the Messiah. Well, that spun Jerusalem up to the point that they're ready to let him have it. And, and a Roman garrison has to come in and rescue him from that. And when they put him in prison, he says, I'm a Roman citizen. And the Roman 
times it, it was basically such as a Roman citizen he could have been set free. But rather than be set free, he says, I'm appealing the accusation against me all the way up to Rome. I'm, I'm appealing to Rome. And at that point in time, they just have to put him in the system. And so he goes from seat of power to seat of power, is almost killed in a shipwreck, goes to Rome and is under house arrest, not in a full-fledged prison, but under house arrest in Rome so that he can share the gospel. Now, here's the thing that we only know about through tradition and some spotty sources in history. He was released, and, and that seems to be confirmed in Scripture. He was released after a couple of years, free to be anywhere else but Rome. We think he went to Spain preaching the gospel at the, at the western edge of the known world at that point in time. So we think he went to Spain. And then, let me ask you, if you'd been arrested in Rome and then a guy named Nero, who's really kind of unbalanced, is now in charge of Rome and, and known to kill people on a whim, and you were one of the most notorious Christians alive, would you find anywhere else to be in the world but Rome? I mean, let's be honest. People who um, are not inclined to come to church because the chiefs are kicking off at noon are in all likelihood not going to show up in the place where they would be at greatest danger. And yet that's where he goes. He's immediately arrested. He's eventually executed. Days before that happened, he's pinning this letter to Timothy. And here's what he says. It's all worth it. It's all worth it. I mean, if I have to give up my life for the sake of the gospel, it's all worth it. Because guess what? First of all, the gospel's not being limited in my imprisonment. I mean, in the very practical sense, how many times and in different ways do you think his guards heard Jesus saves? They might say, Paul, are you hungry? Yes, I am. And that reminds me, Jesus saves. I, I would imagine that they heard it over and over and over and over again. But even in prison, it wasn't bound because the gospel had spread past him. Paul understood that for all of the drive that he had given to expand the church through the known world at that period of time, that the gospel had lighted a fire that wasn't going to go out when his head came off. And so he says... It's all worth it. I'm willing to endure whatever might come for the sake of the elect, for the sake of the church, so that the gospel can be advanced everywhere. The gospel of Jesus Christ is worth whatever, and let's be honest, in our cultural context, it's worth whatever inconvenience we might perceive outing ourselves as a Christian or speaking Christian truth might cause us. It is very likely that none of us are ever going to face the situation that Paul himself faced. It is very likely that none of us are going to have our lives demanded of us for faithfulness. But we will have those moments in time where those people around whom we spend the bulk of our time, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors will kind of lay it out there for us, an opportunity to speak a good word for Jesus or to remain hushed. And we know that if I step into this pitch, if I 
stand up for biblical truth, if I stand up for the exclusivity of Christ saying that no one can be saved but by the name of Jesus, if I stand up for a a cultural hot-button issue that Scripture speaks directly to, things like uh, abortion and things like uh, same-sex attraction, if I speak up for all of those kinds of things that I may be ostracized, within the church there may be times where standing up and speaking a good word for Jesus to church people may cause us to be ostracized. If you don't believe that, I want you to just go back and look at the emails I get anytime I say that we need to treat immigrants, illegal or otherwise, with dignity. I say that kind of thing. And people will say, "Mm -hmm -hmm. I don't know if you're the pastor I thought that you were. And, And frankly, if you're just figuring that out, Um, (laughs) there will come a time where to stand up for truth is going to cost you and Paul says to Timothy it's going to cost me my life it may cost you yours and it's worth it so remain faithful so two truths so far number one you're going to remain faithful in a storm of life. Remember, Jesus is alive, and that life is yours now and will transcend your death. So you can do it. Number two, the gospel's worth it. The gospel's worth it. Whatever inconvenience or suffering it comes, it's worth it. And then my favorite point. You know, you're not supposed to have favorites or like your children. But here's my favorite point today. Jesus is alive. The gospel is worth it. And God is good. God is good. Paul quotes a hymn. There's some speculation as to whether or not Paul wrote the hymn. So, in other words, you have one of those unique situations where a person is saying, allow myself to quote myself. But he quotes a hymn. And here's what he says. Verse 11. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him... He will also deny us. All that's good. It may not feel like it at the end, but but all of that's good. I I want you to look at the goodness of God that is celebrated. If we have died with him, we'll also reign with him. Jesus is alive. And so, because he is alive, we'll live with him. We have his life. God is good. If we endure, if we remain faithful in proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, we will reign with him in that kingdom. God is good. We will reign with him. And then he says this thing that I wish he frankly had not said. If we deny him, he will also deny us. That's not good. Well, of course it is. Here's why. If God has been good and gracious enough to give us the gospel of Jesus, to give us Jesus, to give us life, to to make us, because of what Christ has done, people who reign with Jesus, for us to reject that has a price to pay. And in warning us that there's a price to pay, God is showing that He is good. But here's where he's the goodest. (laughs) Look at verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. (laughs) We've got to ask ourselves in order to really get it, well, who are the faithless he's talking about? You only have two options. 
Option number one, is he talking about those people who aren't believers? And I believe that can't be the case. The reason I believe that can't be the case is because of what he just said. If we deny him, if we reject Jesus as Savior, he will deny us. He's already taken care of. He's already spoken to those who are, 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 are rejectors of faith in Jesus, of surrender to Jesus. And then after this, he says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. He's speaking there, it seems, uh, of those who actually belong to Jesus, who are a part of his, of his life, who have surrendered themselves to him. So here's, here's what he's saying. This is super important. If we, if we are faithless as followers of Jesus, if we are faithless to him, he remains faithful to us. Think about how good that is, folks. If we are faithless to him, as followers of Jesus, if we blow it, if when that moment comes where we're being pressed upon to to stand for the exclusivity of Christ or to stand for gospel truth in some controversial area of American cultural life, if we blow it, if we put our head down and hope no one notices us, if we do it worse, if we commit some kind of egregious sin which grieves Christ Jesus, which grieves His body, which brings shame on the testimony of Christ, if we are in those moments faithless, guess what? God is so good, He remains faithful to us. He remains faithful to us. Why? Because of the nature of the Christ relationship. He has given us his life. We have been been grafted into his life. His life is ours. Our life is in his. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says in Galatians. It is no longer I who live, but Jesus Christ lives in me. Because of that, that, that reality of who we are in Jesus Christ, because of the reality of who we are as followers of Jesus, Christ cannot deny us. And so here's here's how that helps us remain faithful. If we've shipwrecked, Satan wants to whisper in your ear, well, boy, now you've done it. And you can't be any use to God anymore. So you just scoot over, you be quiet, and let other people who are more deserving run the ball from here. And what Paul's just told us, if you blow it, Timothy, and maybe Timothy had already sent a letter of resignation in, maybe inquired about living somewhere else. Maybe he'd already kind of had that faithless moment come. Paul says, guess what? You can do this, Timothy. Dust yourself off. Get up. And remember that Jesus is alive and the gospel is worth it. Every single one of us are going to be asked by our life situation to decide whether we're going to be faithful to Jesus in big ways and small ways. This week, this month, this year, it's just part of it. You have to make a decision. Am I going to be faithful or am I going to be faithless? 
And it might be that the repercussion of that faithless choice really shipwrecks your life. How do you avoid it? You remember Jesus is alive. And his life guarantees you a life that will last a trillion years and just be getting started past your moment of inconvenience. You remember the gospel's worth it. Even if your friends abandon you, Paul's going to talk once we get to the end of the letter about all those that have abandoned him. Even if your friends abandon you, gospel's worth it. And undergirding all of that is just this fundamental truth that God is good. You can do it. You can do this. You can be faithful by the power of Christ in you and all that he's given you in Christ. You can be faithful. Let's pray that we will be. Join me in prayer, please.